Welcome to the Witty and Gritty Podcast. Hosted by Brooke and Farron. Your personal growth matters. And we're here to help. Hey, hey, it's episode 21 and we're in our mini-series discussing the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. Yeah, today we're going to go over part two, which is growing grit from the inside out. This covers chapters six through nine in the book, so that talks about interest, practice, purpose, and hope. So get that workbook and let's go. If you don't have your workbook yet, no worries. We've linked it in the show notes for you. All right. So again, recovering what grit is, it's the power of passion and perseverance. So that was what we talked about part one. This is part two, growing grit from the inside out. And how appropriate that we will cover how to get that passion if you don't feel like you got it yet. And I think we'll actually talk about the movie Inside Out. (laughs) If that's not a tease to stay tuned in, I don't know what is. It's a good movie. It is. I enjoy it. It made me cry, so that means it's a winner. (laughs) It made me nerd out, so I guess that's how I know it's a winner for me. Side note, do you know what movie you cried like your first movie that made you cry? Uh, I know mine if that gives you think. Okay, time. what is it? The Land Before Time. <laughs> what? I had seen it like 17 times, and on the uh, 18th time, I realized his mom died. Mom didn't go on vacation. It didn't click. Now, granted, I was like, what, three and a half, four? Sure. Yeah, we'll go with that. Maybe I was only two. Oh, I don't, I, I don't know. Okay, yes, I do remember. It was The Notebook. And so I was in high school. Mm -hmm. So again, working on feeling my feelings. (laughs) It took me until high school to cry in a movie, I guess. But I just remember I was sitting in Whitney's house. Shout out Whitney. And at the end of the movie, like there were three of us. It was like me, Whitney, and Leah. And uncontrollably sobbing at the end. And I was like, what is happening to me? And I told her, I think I turned to Whitney and I was like, I don't know what I'm feeling. (laughs) Because I was feeling... Happy with the reuniting, and then sad because then it was over, but happy because it ended that way, but then... Anyway, that was a lot. So I guess all the pent-up emotions of 17 years not ever coming out manifested in... I just cried a whole lot. (laughs) That is not what this episode's about, though. That was just a little bonus. Yes, it's okay to cry. Um, All right, so chapter six is titled Interest. So the chapter starts off, of course, by trying to help you as the reader figure out what your passion is. And so you're encouraged to dabble in your interests. And um, I was encouraged in picking a career, of course, to pick something that would support me financially. And then, you know, if I happened to like it, that was a bonus. Now I'm sure my parents are listening. They did nothing wrong. They wanted me to not be a starving artist or a beanie baby collector or... <laughs> you can turn those in for some cash, I hear. Oh, I don't know. I just don't know. Anywho. As in you can't let go of them. Yeah. I understand. No, just like I see them at the Goodwill for a quarter and I'm like, oh. So really for a million dollars? I don't believe it. Supposedly. So no, I think it is smart to encourage your kids, especially these days, to have some type of profession where you can actually live off of something besides ramen noodles. So Mm. nothing wrong there, but obviously always going for a job where you can support yourself and your family And yes, it was also good if you like it, but if you had to put one in front of the other. This is the power of double majoring. 
So I know so many of our peers who wanted to major in one thing, but either their parent wouldn't allow it, or Angela Duckworth talks about how she wanted to major in one thing, and just how many people in this book wanted to do one thing, but then they felt obligated to do another. So if you're in college, just double major. Or if you're a parent of someone who you're wanting to maybe guide a little bit more, encourage a double major. That way they have a backup plan, or you can call it like, that's just job insurance, basically. Like if your philosophy major doesn't produce a job the first year, your business major will. So that might be a thing. Put that in your back pocket. Or hey, even a trade school, shoot. Kids are coming out making way much more money than me. Than we'll ever make. Yeah, so even research backs up that you'd be more satisfied with your job if it aligned with your passions, which seems kind of like a duh. But there are definitely people out there that think works, work, job's a job, you don't have to like it, but you can still do your job well. But I think, you know, in the research she cites says that you have a better performance when what you're doing aligns with your interests. Right, Just and she gives a great example. So, for instance, people who enjoy thinking about abstract ideas are not happy managing the minutia of logistically complicated projects. They'd rather be solving math problems. So you got to think about where your interests lie and play into those things because there's clearly a reason that you're interested in that. Which, again, side note, we'll link it again. We linked it in the first episode, but it's that passions and gifting little free guide. So if you need help finding your giftings or your passions, that will help you do that. Yeah. Spending some time writing it out, giving it your full attention. Yeah. It takes about 30 minutes. Yeah. But well worth it. Agreed. So then it goes on to talk about fostering a passion. And so it starts off with exploring interests, which I think we do naturally as kids. And then at some point, we kind of lose that natural exploration. That just plays into the point of parents, you need to be getting your kids involved in anything. There's research after research after research showing that if your kid is involved in an extracurricular, they will excel in other parts of their life. Like it's not an and or thing, it's also. Mm -hmm. I saw uh, on a show like Oprah's, it could have been hers, um, some art savant that was like six years old. And I was like, man, at what point did they hand her a paintbrush? Right. My kids love to paint, but I tell you, I try to hide it. They want to do it. <laughs> and I'm like, you want to jump off the roof instead? I mean, it just, the idea of getting it all out and leaving yes. it all, it just is a lot. And it's like, uh -huh. wow, those parents stuck a paintbrush in that kid's hands early if she's six and already on Oprah and selling multi-million dollar paintings. So not saying that every kid has a savant is a savant. We just need to throw everything at them. But you never know what your kid could have a, a talent for if you don't give them that opportunity. Right. She even talks about how whenever she's been interviewing, she calls them grit paragons. So people who are super gritty and thriving in life. Um, they said they spent years exploring several different interests, and then they would eventually find one that they favored or felt like they enjoyed more. They got more out of it. And we'll talk about big picture thinking later on. So, like the pottery guy, he, they, him and his wife started out with a bunch of different things, like tapestries and dyeing fabric, and they eventually moved into pottery. So, mm -hmm. dabble. Yep, I like that too because 
um, in the last uh, episode that we did, it talked about uh, we missed, what's it? Mythologize. Mythologize people that are just like really great at what they do. Like Mm -hmm. they just woke up and they just knew that's what their talent was and what their calling was. And they just went out there and did it. And here we are trying to figure out what we're trying to do with our lives. That happens to zero people, except for Jesus, who is also <laughs> God. So he had the wherewithal to know. You're right. There's been one living person on earth to do that. Yep. So just, again, give yourself some grace. Don't sit there and wait for it to find you. Right. Go out there and spend some time figuring it out. Agreed. Alrighty, so then it goes on into how passions could be subtle early on. So if you're changing from, you know, if you're exploring different interests, if you don't give each interest enough time, then you might move on and miss something you're really interested in because you just didn't stick with it long enough. Good Lord. Let's talk about not quitting when you have a bad day. So good rule to have is never quit on a bad day. So whether it's your job, your kid's sport, and they had an argument with the coach, or if, man, the coach didn't play me again. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are very real conversations that you're going to have with your kids. Or the teacher just doesn't like me. You can't let your kid quit on a bad day. Yeah, that whole don't make a permanent decision on temporary feelings. Yes. See, don't feel your feelings. Is that what you're telling me? No. <laughs> you need to feel some. Let those Just don't make quick decisions. Yes. Brooke, yes. they're called tears. They come out of your eyeballs. Or that. Yes. All right. <laughs> so, on it. I'm not heartless. No, she's really not. Sort of. She's just my tough best friend. Right, right. All right. So then it talks about the psychology of interests. So it says, passion for your work is a little bit of discovery, followed by a lot of development, and then a lifetime of deepening. Right, so I think it's not going to happen overnight. We just need to know. if it, it. First of all, the interest phase takes a long time. I mean, all her research shows that the kids played around for first comes play, is mm-hmm. what her main point was. You have to let the kids play. Play in the paint. Play in the mud. Have your boundaries. Yeah. But... I mean, paint outside. That way the inside of your house isn't dirty. Just the grass outside. It's fine. (laughs) So, again, have your boundaries, but let them play. Play comes first, and then interest starts to develop, and then the passion comes later. I like in this section, too, she said that interests are discovered through interaction with the outside world. So, again, a lot of it isn't going to come from inside. I don't know that you're going to say, wow... I'd really love to be a mountain climber without ever seeing anyone climb a mountain or right. visit mountains or know that you can climb them. Right. So Just watching that. free solo documentary oh. doesn't count. Did you watch that? Yes. Oh. Nerves. Ball of nerves the whole time. Had to watch some cartoons mm-hmm. before bed after Gosh. that one. Yep. Anyways, that's another good one, folks. And so then after you, again, get yourself out there, interact outside the world, especially if you're doing this as an adult, step outside your comfort zone. I'm sure you have coworkers that do odd things to you (laughs) that you could just, you know, 
say, hey, <laughs> I'll hang out with you. Let's, I'll try that. Let's go. Let's uh, painting with a twist. Or mm-hmm. I'm just stuck on the paint examples tonight. You but... are. You're channeling your mother. Oh, look yes. At that. She is a painter. That is true. All right. So, yes, we're going to um, interact with the outside world. And then we're going to give it time to develop. So don't just try it once and decide you're over it. Um, give yourself some time to develop the interest and revisit it, re-trigger it. Uh, try something in the same realm, but new. So maybe you join an adult co-ed league and you start with basketball, but that's not your jam. Maybe you try another sport in an adult co-ed league. Right. Find the things that you enjoyed about it. And then, like you were saying, find something similar to it. So if basketball is not your jam, right. or if cooking's not your jam, then maybe something else is that it has the similar yeah. aspects of like, it. Like, instead of cooking, you could be a foodie. And instead of, like, having to make it. Yeah. There, you just enjoy the food because yes. that's the part you liked. Or basketball, maybe you liked the camaraderie, but not the running or the physical contact. So you go do golf and yeah. or bowling. Yeah. See? That's good. And then I, I really like the last point she makes. The interests thrive when there's a crew of encouraging supporters, including parents, teachers, coaches, peers. So, And then it talks about why, it's, why are other people so important. Um, besides, they, they provide that ongoing stimulation and the information that is essential to actually liking something more and more. So that positive feedback, and that's the feel happy, competent, and secure. So I, I don't know if... Y'all, you've seen the article, but it's the five words you should say after your kid's game. Mm -hmm. And it's just, I love to watch you play. Yep. So that's just that boosting the confidence of the kid. They at least, even if they had a terrible game, they know they have a coach from the parent role on their side getting their back. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the examples in this section I felt like were um, young children based. But again, this applies even in your late teens or early 20-somethings or somewhere where we're in the age bracket we're in, Mm -hmm. (laughs) is like you're encouraging supporters. I mean, do you have friends that are supporting you in pursuing different dreams and goals? Are your parents as your spouse? And so not that everyone's going to just be on board, but if you Mm -hmm. don't have somebody... That doesn't mean you can't do it. You just need, it will be easier if you can find some people, again, that are on the same path or have been where you are and can help you down that road. Everybody needs a motivator. Everyone needs a cheerleader. Everyone needs a coach. I mean, you'd be silly to think you don't need someone supporting you. You can't do it on your own. Yeah. And, I mean, take a look at what you've done so far. And if you're not seeing um, maybe the progress or you're not where you thought you'd be by now, that might be uh, the factor you're missing. Right. All right. Then it goes into before hard work comes play, which, Brooke, you already touched on this, but um, giving students and even adults time to play and explore before full-on committing and, you know, hey, they played one basketball game. They could be a basketball star next week. You're going to have five one-on-one sessions because you're going to be in the NBA or something crazy. So have you ever heard of a passion project? Um, Yes, but elaborate for our listeners. Yes, okay. So I'm just going to give an example. So Google 
they allowed a certain amount of time. They either allowed a whole day, like on Fridays, or they allowed blocks of times, like from 3 to 4 p.m. every day. So, again, that shifts with whatever company we're talking about. But Google, for example, let all of their employees at specific times throughout the work week work on some sort of pet project, and the only rules were that it had to be beneficial to the company. And that was it. And they just let all their employees run with it. And now we have Gmail. I mean, it's things like that. Just giving your, if you're the leader, give your people under you space to do that. Or your kids, give them the space to do that. Like you could line up all of the paint and the crowns and the markers and the pencils and see what they pick up. Mm-hmm. And that, from there, you could play into what they like. Oh, okay, I see you picked up the paint. What about this? So again, there's we we are using so many things just because people were allowed the room to play. Mm-hmm. And I know for me, like playing college soccer and just training year round from forever till through college. I mean, what got me through again that hard work was I already had the passion and the love for the sport, and so you have to have that because it's not always going to be easy. And if you're going to continue to grow, you should be doing the hard stuff almost every day and pushing yourself. And it's a lot easier to get through that, those challenges when you already have the passion and the desire for it. Right. So it's really important to get those two steps in order. Mm -hmm. Play, develop the love for it, because then the hard work can come next. Make sure you note that we didn't say put your kid in the sport that you played just because you want them to play that sport. Well, they can try it. Right. There's a difference between making them do something they don't want to do. Yes. Or, on the reverse side, if your kid is interested in something that you have no desire for them to be interested in, still let them try. Give them a trial run. Yeah. I mean, it's not up to you to choose their life. I'm trying to over here. I'm preaching to myself right now because what if a certain someone wants to do a certain thing... I have nothing against band at all. That, I just, wasn't, that was not a band No, that dig. was my. They actually me. play instruments. Well, see, and I think there's so many benefits. I just don't want to hear it in the house. When it's like, I'm picturing the recorder you get in third grade. I'm not picturing high school band, okay? Mm-hmm. Like, I mm-hmm. total admiration for all that. I just don't want to hear the recorder. Three blind mice. But, like, scre- <laughs> the mice are screaming. <laughs> oh, stop it. Okay. Let's move on. Emotionally scarred. It's yes, fine. Still. <laughs> Alrighty, so then the book gets into Benjamin Bloom's study. Nerd time. Yes. Any fellow educators out there heard of Bloom's taxonomy? And if you're not an educator and, like, what the heck? So, Bloom's Taxonomy, it's the set of three hierarchical... Hierarchical? I like it. It's fancy. Uh, Models used to classify educational learning objectives into levels of complexity and specificity. So, there's, again, it's a tiered system going from one thing to another, and it builds all the way up to all this magic. So, it's the higher order thinking skills, or it's the stuff that, if you're an educator, you've... We don't need to talk anymore about this. Well, it just starts from, like, memorizing facts to, like, the top levels, like, problem solving and reconfiguring it. Synthesizing, analyzing, all that good stuff. All the big words. So that same guy, he has a whole book on growth of, of talent. So blooming talent. 
Surely it's not blooming talent if his last name's Bloom. Developing talent, that's what it is. I just made it up in my head. Bloom makes sense. He's one of those that his name told his future, what he was going to be writing about. But he talks about um, the three phases. So there's the beginning years, and that's where, again, you're exploring your interests. Then you um, need encouragement and warm, supportive mentors. And then the last part is autonomy. Right. The beginning, the middle, and the end. Just like any good story. Yes. I like it. Well played, Bloom. And he goes on to say that skipping these steps can lead to um, some serious consequences. Um, There's another researcher who talks about specifically with sports that if you, you know, do too much too soon and you do these steps out of order, that it can lead to injury and burnout. Um, I know plenty of soccer players that were studs, but come middle of high school, they quit, they were done, never went on to play Mm -hmm. college soccer, and that's all fine, but I think their hopes and dreams, either their parents or theirs, were for much further than where they actually ended up. Right, And, and from the injury standpoint... If you are pushing a child too hard, too fast, their body physically cannot handle it. Just like yours can't as an adult. You can't run marathons every day. That would be bananas. I feel like I do, but I don't. (laughs) Never have. Another thing that I admire about other people. Yet we will not do. We're not going to say we won't do it. But man. Very What's it going to take for us to... (laughs) One million dollars. <laughs> okay, you're yeah, right. I will run a marathon if one million dollars are on the table. Not Monopoly money. <laughs> you can't trick me again. The real deal. <laughs> yes, that sounds good. So again, Bloom, he has the Bloom's taxonomy as far as the education realm goes, but he has the developmental side for talent. So that's how you need to go about it, according to his research. And again, this term, short-termers, or people that move on from um, one interest to another too fast without giving it enough time, um, this is going to be a reoccurring theme. Um, So at this point in the book, it talks about, it calls them short-termers, and referring to, again, more of an adult here, moving from job to job to job. Just because it gets hard, or because the money's not on the table, Mm -hmm. whatever the reason is. Um, and we're not, this is also not blanket statement in oh, this of either, not. because some people do need to make a lateral move to work where they need to be or work with the people that need to get them to the place. So there's, we're not talking about that. We're talking about, oh, this job's too hard. Find another job. Oh, this job's too hard too. Mm-hmm. Another job. Oh, wait, this one. I'm having to work hard at this one too. Or, yeah, or I'm bored, or I thought this job was fun, it was fun for a year, but now I'm bored. And they say, you know, there are ways to avoid being bored. Um, everything's fun and new. I think about kids when they get their Christmas presents, right? Mm-hmm. They play with it for maybe five minutes. They wanted it <laughs> for months. You buy it. You fight people on Black Friday for it. <laughs> and then... They just are over it in five minutes. And so um, I, some people, they work really hard. They go to school to do these this job, have this career. And a year or two into it, they're wondering how they're going to do this job till retirement. 
And that can be very overwhelming. Right. Um, So I do like how it encourages there's ways to avoid this slump or being bored. Right. And and we're also not saying stay in a dead-end job. You you have to look intrinsically at yourself to figure out your motivations, your underlying motivations, and your thinking process through this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it says humans have a basic drive, or their basic drive is a desire to learn new things, um, that the brain craves novelty. So again, that lines up with being bored. If you're bored, then you're lacking the novelty, the uniqueness, the new experiences, something exciting to look forward to, Um, the joy you get out of overcoming a challenge or working through a problem. So if you've been at, again, in the same place, that boredom can come because it's just habit and you're just going through the motions, same thing day in, day out. And if you're in a place where you can't quit your job or whatever that is, you need money on the table to pay the bills, uh, you still have that, but then also try the new things. Take the cooking class, learn how to knit, whatever it is. Like, hey, that's totally obscure. Let me go try it. That's how you can fulfill that while also being responsible. Yeah, no one, nowhere in here does it encourage you to like jump from one job to completely other job. Yeah. A lot of people don't have the finances to do that. That'd be nice, right? Right. Yeah. Um, So I like, too, how it described novelty again, that novelty for a beginner is anything new. But for an expert, so again, if you've been in a job for a long time and you're the expert at what you're currently doing, um, novelty can be found in the minute details. (laughs) Yes. We were trying to not say minute, and I'm proud of it. We were reviewing our notes and just... I, I use minute more than minute, so mm-hmm. who doesn't? Yep. So a for, minute number of you guys. <laughs> oh my gosh! Mm, let me stop. So <laughs> I do. I do kind of the same thing with part of my day. I work with students, and it it can be the same thing over and over and over again. But I choose to find novelty in when a student has a light bulb moment. And sometimes it's like, wait, are you saying that this does this? And I'm like, it's what I've been saying for the last hundred days of school. No, I'm just like proud and I live for those moments. And that's the minute details. Whereas my first year, I was like, I got through a whole lesson. My lesson planning took less than three hours. Things like that got me excited. I like it. Also, it mentions in the chapter, make sure you're revisiting your notes from the grit scale. So hopefully you've already taken that. If not, make sure you hop on the first part and go take it or at least look at the page. That will be helpful, whether you're short-termer or if you're trying to find the new thing. So keep that in mind, too, throughout this whole book study that we're doing. And so it also goes on to talk about when you're exploring new things to recall your teen years Um, because in your teen years right what do you remember what one of the first things you really thought you were going to be or was it always an educator teacher yeah yep well I was going to be a high school math teacher and coach soccer so um in middle school we had to do a millennium project and you had to come up with what you were going to be so that's when I decided teacher uh but yeah, in our teen years, I know a lot of my friends 
and even kids know. What are you going to go to school for? Oh, I don't know. They either don't know or they have like five different ideas. Right. <laughs> and the school they're going to only like offers one of the programs. And mm-hmm. But you know, you figure it out when you get there. So yeah, your teen years is usually when you might have thought you knew it all or you just, you know, didn't have all these, um, I don't know, what would you say? Like you weren't scared to dream. Right. You didn't have kids. You weren't married yet, maybe. Mm-hmm. Don't think so. Uh, and you just, you know, had your future ahead of you. Right. I think a lot of times kids don't, they say they don't know because they don't want to say out loud what yeah. they are really thinking. Like, is there a, I really like to do X, Y, Z. Is there even a job for that? Or I don't even know how to get to that place. So they don't know how to fill in the gap from where I want to be to where I, or where I am to where I want to be. And for those kids and all high schoolers or people in general, I would definitely say that you should see if you can volunteer in that field or do an internship. Um, I know several people that came out of college when they knew they were very confident in what they wanted to do and they could sell it to me all day. Um, but after a year or two of either going down the med school path or being in a certain career, man, they were going back to school or trade schools. Um, because once they got there, they're like, crap, this isn't what I w- wanted to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, I definitely think it's important that y- when exploring your passions, again, before you commit to the hard work, do the play. And what that would look like is mm-hmm. volunteering, interning, um, getting some observation in. Yeah. The, again, that's a very wise step, especially when we just talked about don't just quit your job and be like, bah, I want to go do this one thing play first. So still have the responsibility of whatever job you're doing, but you can also be dabbling in the other things, volunteer, like you said. Plus that's just good practice. That's good modeling for your kids anyway. Mm -hmm. And I know that like some people that I talk to and work with, something that's come up recently is exercising, right? We all know that we should eat well and exercise, but exercising seems to be the thing that a lot of people I hang out with just can't wrap their heads around but they are like being brave and trying different exercise programs whether it's um getting on a bike or zumba or you know finding whatever works one with their schedule which is very hard to do but two like exercising does not have to be go run outside it can be it doesn't have to be go lift weights but just kind of dabbling that's so smart. I love it. And I like it because <laughs> me and you like two totally different workouts. You keep wanting me to go to Zumba. And I'm like, meh. Uh, I reserve my dancing for like n- my house. <laughs> well, if this episode gets 200 downloads, we'll post a video of her at Zumba. Okay. No. No, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. All right. Within how many days? Uh, forever. If, ever, if this episode ever hits 200 downloads. Yes. All right. I agree. Everyone go download it. And I'll be full of regrets <laughs> whenever <laughs> we hit this number. Someone's just going to get everyone to, oh, uh, it's be fine. Great. It'll be all right. It's fine. I'll play. Mm-hmm. I love you. Uh, I love you. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. My love's unconditional for you. It's oh, fine. Oh, yeah. Yes, that's good to know.
All right, chapter seven is all about practice. So we just talked about chapter six, which is interest. That's the play and getting to be familiar with certain things. And now we have chapter seven, which is we found that interest and now we're going to practice it. Yes, we'd like to get better at what it is we're doing, yeah. um, which is exactly what the book says. It says gritty people practice because they want to do better. So um, it's not necessarily like you're not satisfied with what you've done in the past it's an optimistic view on your future and almost like this sense of man I'm really enjoying this and I'm kind of doing well at it how good could I be if I actually worked hard and put some practice in I know growing up we always heard practice makes perfect but then as I got older I realized that's not true. Practice doesn't make perfect. And then I was like, wait, well, does perfect practice make perfect? But there's, I have to give, there's not perfect. There's not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect, <laughs> not me. So I need to remember. Uh, so one of the side note, the reading program we do, we can't use the word perfect. We have to use the word excellent. So I've been trying to replace that in my life. So is it excellent? Excellent does not mean perfect, but it means excellent. So I can handle excellent. If it's not perfect. So, excellent practice makes excellence. And what's your Enneagram number, just in case (laughs) someone missed that series? Well, it's a one. Yes. Which is the perfectionist. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to say, which is excellence. Does that work like that? (laughs) I love it. Well, I'm a nine wing one, so I can relate. And, you know, I feel like sometimes in my career, um, people have you know, throwing the word out there, perfectionist, and soapbox moment, but man, when people say it, it is not a compliment. No, it is. It's It's never a compliment. And just so everyone knows the perfectionist you're talking to, as long as they're over the age of like 19, they know it's not a compliment. (laughs) So I, I wish people knew I've been called competitive. I've been called perfectionist. Um, but really it's me against myself. Right. Like, I always want to do more, and I know if I put in the extra time and energy, ultimately, and we'll get into this later, but that it's going to benefit others. It's really not about, you know, how great can I be. It's, I know that that time and energy can come back and help other people. Right. So, again, the whole battle of quantity versus quality. So, I, I mean, as a former coach, I've seen... Us have I've been in situations where we've had to have practices a certain amount of minutes because the UIL allows a certain amount of minutes, but that doesn't mean your 14-year-old in a certain level of a sport needs to be practicing a certain amount of minutes a day when really we just want them to, number one, interest. We need them to play and have fun with it. Um, that can develop into the passion so it has to be baby steps first. You can't just go from A to Z. I mean, there's even even if it's a freshman on varsity, that they've already had the A, B, C, D, E, F, G all the way to Z. So they're ready for the passion in that level. But an unexperienced little human may not be quite ready for that. Mm-mm. So just got to think about all the things involved, which is really hard to do. There's a lot. You're just doing the best you can, people. Keep it up. Yeah. All right, so yes, um, quality time versus just checking the box and saying I put my time in. And so we mentioned this in the last episode too, but 
we said, it's coming up later in the book, and here it is. It talks about having 20 years of experience. And so you could do what you did your first year in the profession and do the exact same thing for the next 19. And yeah, on paper it says 20 years of experience, but you really had your first year 20 times. Versus if you have year one, you looked at what worked, what didn't, made some changes, went into year two. And that, again, that evaluated. Just, yeah, if you need an example... If you're a teacher, think about your very first year of teaching, your very first day of school, your introduction to yourself and your class getting to know you game or activity. Now do that again this year if you're a 20-year teacher. All those 20-year teachers are going to be like, heck no. Yeah. (laughs) That one bombed. I'm not going to do that. So again, you got to think about the one year, 20 times versus 20 years of experience. Um, And I know some of you have heard of Erickson's The 10,000-Hour Rule. So that's basically once you have accumulated 10,000 hours, again, of deliberate practice, there's a difference between just showing up and then showing up and performing your best. So there's the difference there. The 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, that's when you become a master of something. So 10,000 hours roughly gets to about 10 years if you're treating it like your full-time job. That's about how that works out. So if you are on year one and you're hot to trot in your mind, just make sure you're aware that uh, maybe you're not quite there yet. And if you think you are, then there's room for you to grow. Because there's always room for you to grow. Yep, 100%. Um, So this term deliberate practice is going to come up over and over again in this chapter. And deliberate practice means essentially practicing with a purpose So you have a target in mind and you have a plan on how you are going to complete your practice and you're going to receive feedback and you're going to track your growth. Um, So it talks about how experts practice. I I love that this book gives very actionable things to do. So that's just, that makes me happy because anytime I read books, I'm like, okay, so what do I do now? Right. What I need a step one, step two, step three, someone tell me what to do. Yeah, sometimes they stop short. They say, well, you know, experts, they practice deliberately, and then they move on. And you're cool. like, but, but wait, here, here I am. What does that even mean? Yeah, so starting on page 121 in your book, hopefully you clicked the affiliate link and got your copy, um, it talks about the steps. So it says that experts practice by trying things they can't do, and then they fail, which I love. I love that mm-hmm. it says that. And then they learn what they need to do differently to be successful next time. That goes back to the West Point training. They would intentionally give the trainees something that they had no experience in, had no idea how to do it, and they just were like, okay, figure it out. And they had to see who pushed through and who challenged it. So again, that's you just have to get out there and do it. Mm-hmm. So the way they break it down for us people on our way to being experts is step one you need to set a stretch goal so again you're picking a very specific weakness not I want to get better at cooking but maybe like I don't cook raw meat all the way there you go (laughs) I'm gonna work on my meat temperatures the example they give in the book is from Rowdy Gaines who's the Olympic gold medalist swimmer and he talked about he was his Time was 115, and so every day he was trying to get it to 114. And it, once he got 114, it'd be 113. So it was a very specific swim, 
at a very specific time. Mm -hmm. And so after you have your goal, it makes sense. The next thing you're going to do is strive to reach this goal. Um, and again, your intentionality. Um, you're going to want to give undivided attention and a whole lot of effort. Um, the good news is it mentions in there too that experts have deliberate practice for three to five hours a day. So they're not practicing 12 to 14 hours deliberately every day. And it also said that after each of those hours, they need a break. So that's what your top dogs, Olympic gold medalists, CEOs of the most successful businesses, they're able to allow three to five hours of deliberate practice a day. Mm -hmm. Now they're probably still at work and doing other things when they're not in the pool or, you know, not at their desk. But the deliberate practice is just a short little yeah. burst of time. The quantity right there over qual or I meant the quality over the quantity. Let me not mix those up. <laughs> but yeah, if you look at uh, from what I know, what Morgan tells me, Tom Brady has a ridiculous training schedule where he'll just watch film all the time, studying every little detail. And clearly that's worked out for him. Or Kevin Durant says he spends most of his time by himself, probably 70% of the time by himself, just working on the little things. And that way he can implement it in the practice with the team. So again, he's taking what he needs to work on individually gets better at it every single day, and then that way he can incorporate the team next. Mm -hmm. So the other thing with deliberate practice is I like how it said that um, a lot of the experts took naps after the hours of deliberate practice, which reminds me of the movie Inside Out. Um, when Riley, the main character, goes to sleep, all the people in her brain started storing all of her memories into long-term memory. And so it's really good to not only go hard, but also give yourself the right amount of rest so you're able to store physically, like recover, but mentally also retain everything that you're learning and picking up on. I love it when the movies are so detailed and accurate like that. Way to pick up on that. It helps being the parent when you're watching some of these things. I also appreciate the humor that like only I get but the kids are like, what's that? Yeah. So, yes. Thank you, Disney and Pixar. Yay! Who also now own Star Wars. So mm -hmm. I'm excited about that. Cool. So to make the most of um, your progress on your goal when you're giving this effort and you're practicing or um, spending time creating, maybe you're a writer, um, you want to make sure that you're seeking feedback throughout the process and not just at the end. So the more feedback that you can get, um, the more growth that you're going to make. And it's not comfortable always, but you're obviously going to be more interested in any feedback that you get on maybe stuff you're not doing as well as you could be. And that gets you out of your comfort zone too. You have to know ahead of time. I have to give this permission, this person permission to give me the feedback that I need to get better. And that doesn't mean it's going to be pleasant, but it is going to be helpful. Very helpful. And again, like you said, Brooke, I think it's important to definitely have a relationship with somebody and not take it personally. That person, if you've chosen you know, a good confidant, um, is their goal is the same as yours. They want to help you get to where you want to be. Um, so Yeah, be careful with who you're letting speak life into you. So you need to make sure 
it is a person with the same goals. You line up the same way morally, ethically, all all the things you need to line up on to make you achieve this goal. It would be silly to get advice from someone who is who has not gone before you and cannot coach you up on it. Mm-hmm. And when they give you that feedback, make sure you're taking time to reflect on it. Um, because some of it, you don't have to accept every piece of criticism they give and go and change it. It's still yours. This goal is still yours. So you got to take their feedback and pick and choose how you want to interpret it and what you want to do with it. Which is a good idea to journal if we haven't said that a million times. So if we're not taking notes on what our mentors are telling us to do to grow and do better, then what are we doing? Because our brains cannot retain all of that information. So record it. You can record the conversation. You can ask, hey, can I take notes on my phone while you're talking to me? I'm not texting. I'm trying to take notes. So whatever you got to do to write it down so you can remember it. Because especially if it's right after the event, so like after Rowdy Gaines swam and his coach was talking to him, he was probably exhausted. So he needed to immediately go write that down so he could just think about that later. Mm-hmm. And it makes sense, but the last step is to repeat. But something that might not be so obvious is that your stretch goal is not the same as your top goal. We talked about hierarchy of setting goals in the last episode, so if you missed that, go check it out. But your stretch goals are going to be your lower-level goals that get you to your mid-level goals, which then get you to your higher-level goals. So um, you should ideally be setting these stretch goals more frequently than the time you've kind of given yourself to reach your top-level goal. Right. All right, so then, of course, this we're, we're talking about this, right? But it's easier said than done, and that's not going to be ignored. Benjamin Franklin talks about um, pushing through the pain and... We've heard all sorts of these kind of phrases like some people love to feel the burn or, you know, Mm -hmm. they love a good challenge. And, you know, some of that is personality, but if that's not something you enjoy, we can kind of find a way to see the purpose in it and uh, move through, through these challenges. Yeah, that pain statement makes me think about our personal growth mini series that we did and the pain file that John Maxwell talked about and how everything that you experience is building you up for the next thing. So if you're experiencing some sort of pain, like through a workout or through a mental exercise or through a trial, that is a layer in the foundation that you're going to stand on. Yeah. I think of (laughs) my four-year-old that just, she can't reach her stuffed animal that is six inches away from her and she wants me to you know, come upstairs and hand it to her. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Upstairs. I'm just like, sometimes I wonder if that's what it's like when we go through some of our challenges that if we continue down the path, someday we're going to look back and be like, remember when we thought oh that gosh. was so hard, but now look at what we're doing. Yeah, it just makes me think God's probably just like, it's right in front of you. <laughs> Will you just stick your hand out? You're yeah. going to land on it. Just reach your arm out. Yep. For real. I remember having one kid and never knowing how in the world people had more than one because it was just so much going from zero to one. But then, I mean, you figure it out. You don't really have a choice, I guess. Right. 
<laughs> Surprisingly, we've survived this long on planet Earth, so... And there's we'll, been we'll plenty be right. of workouts when they you walk in and you see it on the board and you're like, I'm going to die today. Yep. Yeah, this will be the day. This is, this is the one. No. <laughs> this is the one that'll get me. Yeah, or even just, man, confrontations. It, I feel like we Ugh. give a lot of parent and uh, sports analogies, but there's been uncomfortable conversations. And again, confrontation doesn't have to be a knockout, drag-out fight, but you know, uncomfortable positions you've been put in that you work through or, again, disagreements in the workplace or, man, with family members and you work through them. And you think, like, that relationship's gone, but then here you are, years later, making progress. Yeah. Um, so, yes, it does, I do want to, did want to point out that it doesn't skip over the fact that just because you have the steps doesn't mean the work's going to be easy. Right. But it does get into this debate about a thing called flow. Uh-huh. Which... So flow is that, okay, so your deliberate practice, so first we have your conscious incompetence. So that's where you're like, okay, I know I'm not good at this thing. I'm aware. So there's the unconscious incompetence. Like, I don't know I'm bad at this thing. And then you're conscious about it. Like, okay, now I realize this is an area I need to work on. And then you're going to move to um, conscious competence, which means now you've kind of gotten better at the skill and then you move to unconscious competence. So it's like four steps, and they all have conscious and unconscious and, con- you know, yeah. anyway. Write so, it down, and then look yes. at it, and listen to this part again. <laughs> Page 123. So then it talks about, basically, it becomes this skill over time that you've developed, and now the the thing that you originally started out being not so great in, now you're unconsciously good just, at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So, again, walking is a great example. <laughs> When you were a newborn, you were unconscious or you were unconsciously incompetent about walking. Yeah, you, you didn't, didn't know. You weren't. You didn't know that you weren't good at it, and then you you started crawling. And you're like, oh, everyone around me is walking. Why can't I do it? And then you are starting to work on it, and then you're older, and now you don't even think about it. And there's sometimes you probably should. Yes. <sighs> don't text and walk. Have you seen those videos? Yeah. Just falling into manholes. Uh, How does that even happen? Who's leaving traffic? manholes un unsupervised? They do that in the cartoons. <laughs> well, not cartoons these days, but right. Yeah, Bugs Bunny, people coming out of the manholes. Yes, and Roadrunner. Why is there a manhole in the desert? I don't know. <laughs> just like acne anvils. Why are those in the desert? Yeah. Well, for the Ninja Turtles, when they there we go. You know, travel. Now we're crossing all of our <laughs> cartoons over. <laughs> we need a refresher on, <laughs> on how all those work. Anyway, so once you get into the unconscious competence, that's flow. And when you're experiencing flow, it doesn't require the effort. Deliberate practice, it's well-planned. It requires extreme effort. And uh, gritty people do more deliberate practice. And therefore, they experience more flow. So the more you're being deliberate and intentional, and it has the forethought. So before you even go practice, you've already planned it out. You've already planned what you're going to do, and then you go do it. So repeating that over and over and over, that gets you to where you're going to end up experiencing flow. Right. And that's how um, Angela Duckworth kind of wraps up the, the debate, you know, is grittiness equal to people that get to the state where they've 
work, you know, they're so talented um, that they're in this flow state or are gritty people the one grinding and planning and putting in all the effort. And so her determination is that it's a combination of both, which I like that approach being a nine. Let's not make <laughs> any grand nine. Let's just make everybody happy. That there you go. It's flow is the result of deliberate practice. Right. You know, you've made it when you're in flow. On a regular basis. Not like this, woo, one blackout moment. Yeah. And I survived, but over and over and over. And that just goes to show, the power goes to show the power of daily disciplines. So again, just every day. You don't magic your way into being awesome at something. You have to work at it every single day. Beating on your craft, like Will Smith says. Hour after hour, beating on your craft. I like how they talked about, they you know looked at all these um, grit paragons. Did mm-hmm. I say that right? Yep. I'm getting my parallelograms and paragons oh. <laughs> all mixed up. It's late, people. Um, There's a math lesson, math teachers. You can talk about paragons and parallels. Oh, and para- paragraphs and polygons. Oh. And who knows? Grit paragons. And they studied all of their daily routines and habits. And they were actually kind of impressed or surprised by how different they all were but what was the same is that they each had a daily routine that they stuck to and so again I think you can look up different people's daily routines and they're out there and it's interesting Mm -hmm. from like a fan standpoint but from like an applicable I'm gonna do what this person does um, I don't know that you're gonna find a whole lot of success with that because all these experts had their own approach to it that fit their own lives. So that makes me think. So Rachel Hollis talks about her daily disciplines and there was, she has one of her things is wake up an hour earlier to do whatever. And so someone was like, well, I'm a doctor. I go, I have to wake up at three 30. So do I wake up at two 30 before I go in? And she goes, no, don't be dumb. (laughs) It just made me laugh. Like, uh, like for me, going to bed an hour late is a lot more manageable with my schedule than mm-hmm. waking up an hour early. Yeah. Like if I'm going to go work out at five, working, waking up at four is not going to, it's not going to be more effective. Me staying up till midnight will be, but that's just me. Yeah. So again, you can look it up. It is interesting, but you definitely don't have to do it organize your day exactly like someone else's yeah so it kind of comes back towards the end of the chapter again not wanting to skip over the fact that it's by no means a guaranteed easy street to where you're trying to get to but it does talk about how gritty people um do find giving more effort enjoyable that they do enjoy the challenge um and so she gives a couple of ways that if you aren't someone who loves the challenge that you can kind of um, develop this love and the first suggestion was positive self-talk which if I think about it the things that challenge me that I don't enjoy are the ones that I have the lowest self-esteem in or before I've even started the task I'm already like being so negative about right there's some sort of underlying thing so if you wake up or walk into a situation and you're already going oh i don't want to be here or oh i don't want to do one this one thing there's something on a subconscious level or on a conscious level you're you're you just need to be aware of it mm-hmm. and 
Put a different way, she um, another author, researcher, mentions that shame does not help fix anything. Um, so I kind of think about it as uh, giving yourself forgiveness. It's, you know, you can feel as bad about it as you want, and you can punish yourself as bad about it as you want, but it's not going to change what happened. And we had a series in church on forgiveness, and it's like if you truly believe that you've been forgiven, then why do you continue to, you know, kind of self-sabotage and put yourself down and things like that? So, again, maybe you aren't enjoying the challenge or the tough parts because um, there's something else deeper down going on. So definitely look into that and uh, keep your self-talk positive. Yep. Chapter 8, Purpose. All right, we realize this is a long episode, so just pretend it's like a bonus episode on top of this. Yay, you. My <laughs> monotone really one. came out bad right then. Yay, you. I mean, yay. <laughs> uh, Talk with a smile. I I do, sort of. It Again, that costs more energy to smile when I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just. <laughs> Chapter 8, purpose. <laughs> now I sound not real. You are real. Uh, I'm a human. We are. Not robots. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh All right, so we talked about interest. We talked about practice. Now we're going to talk about purpose. I hear this all the time. I don't know my purpose in life. And I know I've said that as well. So I know over the course of time, I've narrowed down my human purpose here on Earth. And we do have David talks about this in our interview in a couple of episodes but if you are a believer, your purpose is to glorify God and further the kingdom. That's your purpose. So that can look a million different ways. So that could be if whatever your job is. Yeah, if you're at Chick-fil-A and you are serving a tired mom of four boys, they're Chick-fil-A. You are furthering the kingdom. There you go. <laughs> Jesus chicken. God's chicken, yes. <laughs> this chicken has been prayed over. Amen, amen. We really are. Exhausted tonight. All right, so <laughs> it starts off talking about, again, how you kind of summarized just now, but interest, how do you get from an interest to then um, having a perp, feeling like it has a purpose. Right. So step one is when you're looking for an interest that's self-oriented, obviously, and in, your interests apply to you and what you like. And then once you have chosen that interest, Again, your self-discipline in the practice to get better. And the last step to turn your um, career or interest into um, a purpose, purpose they really define as other-centered. Right. So that just means it's not about you. And again, there's a bunch of research in the book that talks about how um, if you have just self-oriented passions then you don't excel as quicker or as more successful than the people who have other-centered purpose, which just means you're thinking about big picture, you're thinking about other than yourself. So that's what we mean when we're saying purpose. There's more, it's more than just you. So there's interest, which is intrinsic, just me, thinking about myself, and then there's the other-centered purpose. And when I first read this, I was like, why you can't be other centered throughout the whole process 
And I think you can have that in your personality, but it's kind of like on the plane when they tell you to put your oxygen mask on first so you can help others. You know, you want to get really good at your craft first so then you can even help that many more people. Right. And you can be other-centered in other parts of your life. But, For sure. Um, the better that you get at what you do, the more people you can help. So, again, back to Bloom's, his three phases, the early years, which is interest, the middle years, which is the practice, and now we're talking about the later years, the third phase, which is the purpose. So, interest, practice, purpose. And just because it says early years, middle years, later years, that's the phases in going from, you know, just average Joe, (laughs) or maybe not sure of where you want to be to an expert and um, at the top of your game. So early years could literally be childhood, um, but if your interest hit you later in life, it could be Those are your early years for that interest. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've kind of already said this, but it talks about that um, Angela Duckworth's research aligned with this conclusion, that people that scored higher on the grit scale also were more other-centered. So there are some questions that you can kind of ask yourself um, to see where you fall. It's not really um, like the grit scale questions, just general questions posed to you. Uh, What's your underlying motivation behind your grit? And why? what I do matters to society. Those are some things to ask yourself. It's crazy. Again, this is hindsight now that we've done the Enneagram, just thinking about how your underlying motivations are going to figure out your purpose. So that's just fascinating to me in general. So again, it always goes back to the motivation. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I waking up and going to this same job every day? There's a reason why you're doing that. And it's got to be more than just pay the bills. Yeah, and so if you've kind of lost that why, or maybe you've been through a life phase, um, and maybe you haven't done a personality typing program, we definitely recommend the Enneagram, and we have a whole series on that, and the reason we like that one is because it specifically looks at your motivations, not just what others see on the outside and the choices you make, but why you make those decisions. So um, that's definitely something that hopefully you have your Enneagram workbook, and you can revisit that when you get to this chapter in grit. So I'm going to read this first, this little excerpt from here, just about the motivations on why you do what you do. So this is the parable of the bricklayers. So I'm just going to read this little part. It's on 149 if you're following along in your book or when I refer back to it. Fortunate indeed are those who have a top-level goal so consequential to the world that it imbues everything they do, no matter how small or tedious, with significance. Consider the parable of the bricklayers. Three bricklayers are asked, what are you doing? The first says, I am laying bricks. The second says, I am building a church. And the third says, I am building the house of God. The first bricklayer has a job. The second has a career. And the third has a calling. Right. So he, the last one, his other centered purpose would be, again, building a house for God and his people. I love it. And if you are just the person laying bricks... Make sure you have something where you do have the other-centered thing. So maybe you're in a situation where you can't change your job right now and you're just laying bricks. Okay, that that is okay. So where are you building the house of God? If it's not in the brick laying, is it with how you 
are at home? Or is it with how you are with your friends? What are you doing that is other-centered? Yeah, you could be other-centered in your personal life for sure. And Angela Duckworth also puts in here that it's okay to not have professional ambition. But the whole purpose of this book and this research is because they found that most people are looking for more. Um, And not necessarily just a monetary standpoint, but just, again, feeling more fulfilled um, and having a purpose. So there has been research done on this part, the job versus career versus calling. And what's interesting is that a lot of people, uh, there's a minority of workers considered their occupations a calling, which is interesting. So then if that's you, if you're not the one where your job is, it's not your calling, think back about where could you make whatever it is a calling. It could be, is mom your calling? Is spouse your calling? What could that be? What could that look like? Mm-hmm. And again, we're not telling listeners, oh, you're not happy? Go quit your job. Nope, you need to be gritty and stay there. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's different ways this could work out. And one suggestion that comes from the book, too, is that you can, um, if you look at your job as work versus the job title, you can go from a career to a calling without having to change your occupation. So just having a different perspective on um, who you're around, who you're reaching, who your impact is. I mean, still do your job, but maybe there's little ways in there that you can incorporate the interests you have and reach the people you want to help. To back that up with a Bible verse, so in Colossians, so it's the letter to the Colossians, Colossians 3.17, it says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God. Um, So again, that could be if it is laying bricks, if it is picking up trash, if it is wiping noses, whatever it is, it should be for the higher purpose. So showing up on time because it's the right thing to do that serves a higher purpose. So you got to big picture it. It it says a similar thing later on in chapter three of Colossians two. It just repeats it. Whatever you do, work heartily or wholeheartedly as for the Lord. Okay. So again, it just If you needed that extra nudge, 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 there it is. Again, preaching to myself as well. (laughs) Preaching to all. (laughs) We would be silly to think that we don't struggle with, everybody struggles at some point, and you always have to remind yourself. That's why it's a living word, and you got to read it often, because sometimes verses hit you in the face. They sure do. Yeah. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So... Right after that, it talks about how, again, in other research, it shows that everyone is looking for a daily meaning or a daily purpose or a daily bread. And I thought it was really interesting that the researcher said daily bread, because what do you think of when you think of needing daily bread? I think of Jesus and how there's so many references through the Bible about Jesus being life. And the manna provided for the Jews escaping. Or Jesus was like, this is my body. Take it in remembrance of me. Or how he's the living water. So again, it all, I feel like it's all, I'm, I'm making symbolism references and whatnot. But I thought it was cool. And it's not a quinky dink that it says daily bread in this book. No. So there. So again, if you're buying in and you're like, Okay, but how? Guess what? There are steps for you. Thanks, Angela. (laughs) So 
how to cultivate a purpose in a situation that you're currently in. So you're in an air, a field that you were interested in, you've got the practice, maybe you're in a rut, um, maybe you're just feeling like there's something more for you. Here's how you can cultivate purpose where you're at. Reflect on how your work already helps others. So if you're serving Starbucks coffee, good gravy, I promise you're helping others. Yes. <laughs> you are making people's day every single day. Um, number two, how can you change your current work to line up with your core values? So sometimes if those things aren't aligned, then there's a lack of purpose or meaning. So again, take what you're doing and look at your core values and see if there's ways to make those align a little better. And then the last recommendation is to find inspiration in a role model. Man, I can already think of a couple people in my um, place of work and they just, you can tell they love their job. You can tell they're making an impact on their kids every single day. And I'm like, I want to be you when I grow up. And so there's probably people, again, that are in your field and they might really love serving people Starbucks coffee. But they just seem to always be glowing about that. And it's probably not a secret. They've probably found purpose in what it is that they're doing. And it's an other-centered purpose. So jump on their bandwagon and um, they'd be a great role model to have. Yeah. And maybe that's where you have that conversation on getting them to speak life into you. That's where that deliberate practice can circle back in too. So form that relationship. Uh, I liked on page 165 it talked about um there there's a whole story about this one girl who had a job and then someone quit a position so she was like well okay well this store still needs to run so she that day in a six-hour shift figured out how to manage something and so this kept happening over the course of like either six months or a year whatever the book says and they, her superior said it's because she's going beyond the call of duty on a consistent basis that she was able to promote higher, faster. So again, if you need a pro tip, it's go beyond the call of duty. So I know for a lot of people, they have a little asterisk at the bottom of their job assignment and it says, and all other duties assigned. So again, if you're going above and beyond, you're not unseen. So just know that too. Yep, that was another chapter from our study on personal growth to going above and beyond. Yeah, working hard and giving back. All right, and that takes us to chapter nine. Oh, yay! This is about hope. I like this one. I like how they start off by saying that there are two kinds of hope. Because I totally was like, exclamation mark, I agree, check marks, all the things in my book. <laughs> but there are two kinds of hope. There's one kind, and I'm not doing it justice, so bear with me. But that, like, the universe is just magically going to... If I just sit here and I just hope things will work out, then magically things will get better. And then, two, that our efforts can improve our future. So a real-life example might be this. So the first one where, like you said, it'll just all be better. It, here's an example. I have a feeling tomorrow will be better versus I resolve to make tomorrow better. Oh, snap. There are two totally different sentences. Both result in the same thing. One of them is in your control and one of them is out of your control. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, this isn't trying to say that we can play God and no. make our own, improve our own futures, you know, without having our hope or faith in Him. Right. But it's literally doing nothing. You can, <laughs> you can adjust your attitude. You can Facts. adjust your attitude. You can change your prayer life. You can make actual changes um, in your Life. Just change your life. <laughs> change your tech. I feel like we're going to say that every single episode. I so. That's my goal. <laughs> Check. Check your tech. It's just crazy how the power of rephrasing those two sentences, I know tomorrow will be better versus I'm going to make, I'm going to make it better. Mm-hmm. There, it will, your brain will change. So again, we talked about this last episode, how your brain is plastic so you can remold reshape and form it to something else and science has now caught up with that it's proven it which is so cool yay yay science go team go team so of course not everybody um has hope um and they go into lots of really interesting research on um learned helplessness and I like how it starts, though. It says, suffering doesn't lead to hopelessness. Suffering that you think you can't control is what really leads to hopelessness. Yep. There was a big study that they did in 1964, and they proved learned hopelessness. And all the other psychologists were like, this is silly. This isn't a real thing. But now, here in 2019, it's, it's a fact. You can have learned hopelessness. Which means you can have learned optimism. That's great. So, again, if you're part of the problem, you are also part of the solution, which is a great perspective and a mindset shift there. Exactly. And so then they move on to optimist versus pessimist. I love this part. Well, I'm proud of myself for saying those words almost pretty much accurately. So an optimist... Flawless. See, I can't say that word, though. So optimists have a growth mindset, which if you're in education, growth mindset's been around for a while. It's a pretty big deal. Um, But an optimist or someone who has a growth mindset means that they're searching for the root of their problems and trying to find the solutions. Whereas a pessimist assumes, you know, like... I think of Eeyore, like, woe is me. The world is bad. Yes, these, what's happening to me is out of my control, and it's permanent, and there's nothing that I can do about it, so it makes perfect sense for me to give up. Are these also the same people where it's never their fault? Um, Sure. Interesting. I don't know if there's a chapter on that. Maybe we'll uh, we'll do our own research. Angela, if you're listening to this, make sure this is in your next book. Yes. Do something about the Eeyores. People that lack responsibility for their actions. Right. So they, they ran, another group ran an experiment on students, and they, it was just a battery of questions, but it was things like this. So here's an example. Imagine this. You can't get all the work done that others expect of you. Now imagine one major cause for this event. What leaps to mind? So then all the students wrote down answers, and they were given series of hypothetical questions. So if you're a pessimist, you might say, I screw everything up, or I'm a loser. So all of those are examples of something that's permanent. There's not much you can do to change them. And they're also likely to influence other situations in life, which I thought was crazy to think about. So just 
if one specific thing, your answer was, oh, it's just, I always mess everything up. So once you put that absolute in your head, it flows into every other part of your life because I always mess it up. Oh, of course I did. That's just me as a person whenever you can flip the script. So then there's the optimist side of it. And they phrased their their situations like, uh, I mismanaged my time, or I didn't work efficiently because of distractions. So those explanations are temporary and specific, so their fixability motivates them to start clearing away problems. So again, two very different things. The, one, the difference between I screw everything up or I mismanaged my time. And one is being able to fix it. And so those can be summarized too by the self-talk. Right? So you want to make sure that you're watching yourself talk and speaking positively. But hearing you say that, I even was thinking, you know, especially younger kids or our spouses, someone you're in a close relationship with, what you say to them, they can internalize that and that becomes their self-talk. So just being mindful for the people that you influence the most. Um, A lot of self-talk comes from things that they've heard from someone else. Right. You can speak life into a kid. You are flexible. You are confident. You are strong. Just by saying that, you'll start hearing your kids say those things. Like, you can do hard things. Uh, one of our friends on her son's door, it has his name, and it says his name, he can do hard things, which I thought's really cool because he every time he opens a store, he sees that. Mm-hmm. Or um, one of my other friends, she tells her son that every single day. You can do hard things. You can do hard things. So... It's cool how they're already speaking life into such young children, and that way it becomes the narrative in their head 10, 15, 20 years from now. Yeah. And this is a pretty famous quote that goes along with all of this by Henry Ford that says, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Oh, I love that one. Yes. And so this test that they did with all the questions, Again, it talked about carrying it into other parts of life, so not just in that that instance. But then this also says optimistic undergraduates tend to earn higher grades. They're less likely to drop out. They're healthier throughout middle age, and they ultimately live longer than pessimists, all because of self-talk in their head. Mm. What? Also, they found that optimists are twice as likely to stay at their jobs. They sell about 25% more. Uh, in some other groups, they tested different groups in sales. Some groups ended up uh, selling 40% more. Are you kidding me? You mean I can make almost double my salary just by turning into an optimist? That's crazy to me. But it's all being proven. So Feeling more it's, optimistic already. It's mind-blowing. <laughs> it's just really cool. I'm nerding out. It's fine. Yes. Well, you're allowed. Um, so another way to become an optimist is, um, aside from working on your self-talk is your attitude towards making mistakes. So instead of, man, I messed up again, it could be, all right, what can I learn from this to try to prevent it from happening in the future? That's where the perfectionist side of me, that's where I need to grow the most because I don't like mistakes. So when they happen, I get very furious. So I need to fix my attitude towards that so hold me accountable people i like too how it talks about these this term they gave fragile perfects and essentially these are um again it was more in reference to students or um, younger people but that they're invisible high achievers 
and they're pretty vulnerable. Invisible because they're often overlooked. Um, they don't need the extra support. Um, they finish their work, they do their own thing, and they're fine. And so, in a sense, they're being overlooked. And they're vulnerable because they know how to succeed, but they don't know what to do when they fail. Um, which, again, that's going to make you vulnerable because if you've been living long enough, you know that at some point you're going to fail. And you may have already failed really big. And that's okay because all of us have. And again, it's not about never failing. It's about getting back up. The hard part is, if you're a parent and you are watching your child struggle, it, you it's the fine line between getting them from drowning to treading water or from drowning to out of the pool. So if you're trying to teach your kid to learn how to swim, this is just, the, just an example, you're not going to just pull them out of the pool and just totally eliminate the issue. You're going to teach them how to tread water or how to swim, and then they can remain in the pool and remain challenged. Uh, I, I think of, again, we're educators, so I think of school a lot. So you have helicopter parents, but there's also this new term called lawnmower parents where they will mow over anything for their child. So they will end up actually doing the project for their kids. So there are some parents out there who have four high school degrees for their four children that they have had. Mm-hmm. So again, it's it's hard because it's I know it's hard as a parent to watch your child fail or fail miserably, or get defeated, or deflated, that's all really hard, and that all comes with really hard talks, but you have to teach them how to fail and get back up. And let them fail when it's safe. Yes! Um, Gosh, watching my kid try to pour her own apple juice into her cup. (laughs) Yeah, if she messes up, it's going to be a mess, but guess who's going to learn how to clean up a spill? Her. <laughs> you know, so if you can give them the these strategies, because guess what? You can't always be there. And yeah, the lawnmower parents that clear the path So, versus the helicopter, which we thought was bad enough, where, you know, they're mm-hmm. watching, they're letting them get in a situation, and if it doesn't look good, then they're going in. But now mm-hmm. the lawnmower, where they're never seeing this adversity mm-hmm. or challenge. Um it's all about, I think, giving them opportunities to fail and struggle when it's safe. And that support system is there, like we talked about. Like you have, like if your daughter spills the apple juice, you're right there coaching her up on, it's okay, spills happen, here's a paper towel, here's how to clean it up. Yep, as opposed to, God, you're always making messes, you can't mm-hmm. do anything right. I mean, that's the kind of, that's mm-hmm. where that self-talk can come from, is from... Right you know, a frustration, something maybe we shouldn't have said in a time of weakness, and then, ah, it's right. their mindset. It takes, uh, it takes a lot. It's the 5 to 1 ratio. I know that some people have may have heard this or not, but for every, every one withdrawal, you should already have five deposits in the bank. So if you're going to get on to your kid, you need to have already had five deposits in the bank. So that doesn't mean... So here's an example. If you already talked to your daughter about, hey, uh, you know how to do this. I think you're going to be good at it. It might take some practice. I'm right here to support you. I know you're going to try hard, like all these kinds of things. And then when she spills, okay, we spilled. Now we got to clean it up. And if they didn't follow how to do it, you can kindly redirect them. But it's the that way if you have enough deposits in the bank when you really do need to make a big withdrawal, it's okay 
Because they have all the other things to fall back on. Yeah, so five the five deposits could be complimenting your kid, mm-hmm. um, spending quality time, um, giving, again, compliments. But then, you know, the withdrawal is the discipline. Mm-hmm. So it also, I think, makes it easier to, whenever you have to discipline, to be like, hey... I haven't only talked to them to discipline them today. I've done yes. all these other things. And there are going to be days where you feel like you just, all you did was discipline. Yeah. There yeah. are days like that. But that's why you have your other days where you have all the deposits. Mm-hmm. It's just like banking. Oh. <laughs> don't go in the red. All right. So as always, if you're like, man, I don't seem to have hope. I see why it's important. I'm going to work on it. How? Uh, We have a few steps towards the end of the chapter, Um, and the first thing that she suggests is update your beliefs about intelligence. So again, if some of your self-talk is, I'm not smart enough, um, we've seen throughout this book already that intelligence can improve, Um, you can, you know, get smarter, so don't let that hold you back. Practice optimistic self-talk, which we've already said. And then I like the last part that talks about ask for a helping hand. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. So whether it's a friend helping you down there, uh, down the path, or ins- encouraging you, or you know even going to therapy to kind of work on some of those uh, cognitive behavioral yeah. stuff. A lot of that is just getting over the fact of having to ask for help is not a sign of weakness. So that I know that was a hard thing for me to learn. Like just because I ask for asking for help does not make me a weak person. That makes me a wise person because I'm seeking out someone who has gone before me. It'd be silly for me to try to reinvent the wheel when it's already done. Yeah. I can ask for help and that's okay. There are some parts in the book where it talks about uh, it gives an example of I know we're talking about the rephrasing, the positive phrasing. Um, there's there are two, there are four examples. So I'm going to read these four examples to you. And then this is about fixed mindset or growth mindset. So one of them you're on, so there's four. So two of them you're stuck, two of them you learn how to grow. So here are the four. Your intelligence is something very basic about you that you can't change very much. You learn new things, but you can't really change how intelligent you are. No matter how much intelligence you have, you can always change it quite a bit. You can always substantially change how intelligent you are. So again, back to what you were saying, Farron. The first two of those, those were fixed mindsets. It's very basic. You can't change it. Or that's just how you are. Versus no matter what you have, you can always learn to do better. Or you can always change how intelligent you are because you can learn new stuff. You automatically become better at something because... You learned it. And then on the next page, it talks about um, phrases that help you learn growth mindset, how to phrase it, things that promote it. So saying, like, you're a learner, I love that, or that didn't work, let's talk about how you approached it and what might work better, versus like, well, at least you tried, or you're a natural, I love that. So again, it gives a whole list of things that help with growth mindset versus things that cut it down. So that's just going to help you all out there. Excellent. Well, that wraps up this episode. We talked about four chapters. They covered interests, practice, purpose, 
and hope. I did want to add one thing. Oh, please do. I forgot to nerd out about the brain. Oh, the brain. So, but we might need to put this somewhere else in the episode to make it fit smoother. So, you have your prefrontal cortex and your limbic system. So, the limbic system is the fight or flight or freeze part of your brain. So, what happens whenever you come to a failure, whatever happens next, you have to turn your limbic system off and turn your prefrontal cortex on. So your limbic system's going to go, oh, I can't do this. This is too hard. And then you have to get your prefrontal cortex back online to where you can do hard things. You can push through. So again, that talk about what you said, Farron, you have to have a plan beforehand before you get stuck in a situation. You need to have that, su- that support system. You need to have that positive self-talk. That way, when you do hit a wall, instead of going, oh, I'm shutting down, I'm quitting, you have to get the other part of your brain to come online to help you push through it. So if you're in the middle of an interview and you just said a bad question or gave a bad answer, you can't just sit there and say, oh no, I'm panicking, I'm freezing. Or if you're in the middle of a game, oh, I made a mistake. Like, okay, well now they're running on the other end of the field. Go get it. You don't have time to sit here. So again, you have to be able to switch from your limbic to your prefrontal cortex. And that takes deliberate practice. Well, that wraps up episode 21. And that is part two, how to grow grit from the inside out. Yes, chapters six through nine, we covered interest, practice, purpose, and hope. Tune in next week and we're going to go over part three, which is growing grit from the outside in. It will be fabulous. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Witty and Gritty podcast. Join us at wittyandgritty.blog where you can subscribe to our newsletter, check out our blog, and listen to more episodes. We're here to help you become your best self with a community that cares. 